0: Welcome to Why Am I Just Finding This Out? I'm your host, Kristen Stovern, women's health clinician for over 20 years, practicing in all areas of women's health with a passion to educate, empower, and leave a legacy of better health for women. Today on Why Am I Just Finding This Out? I have a special guest that I've looked forward to talking to for, I believe, five or six months. We've been trying to contact for a time that works for us both. Dr. McKean has extensive clinical experience with women's mental health, and she specializes in treating mood and anxiety disorders. Looking forward to really talking about perinatal mental health and really opening the eyes and ears of those out there that may be struggling. Welcome, Melanie. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you
0: doing, Kristen? I'm good. And you're getting ready to open a new practice, too, based on your extensive clinical experience and your passion. Isn't that right?
1: That's right. It's been a long time coming and something that I've needed a nudge for. And so I will be opening my own reproductive psychiatric practice. Very easy to find. McKean Reproductive Psychiatry will be the name of it (laughs) in January 2024 and continue working with patients that have been with me for over a decade, but then also continuing to serve the St. Louis metropolitan area and really, honestly, the whole state of Missouri because I do Zoom as well.
0: So- Those resources that you are providing and the passion that you have, it's so desperately needed. Mental health well-being for women has been overlooked for a long time, but in the perinatal period, it's even more challenging because so many think, oh, you're pregnant. We'll wait till you're no longer pregnant to address those issues. Or you have women that are afraid to bring up what their mental health issues are or concerns, maybe feel shame, embarrassment, feel dismissed. And so many times that entire part of their being, which is huge, their mental health is skipped over.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the patients that I see find how I practice pretty refreshing. I describe myself in general as a pretty conservative psychiatrist as far as prescribing medication goes. In general, people could come and be evaluated with me. And I might say, you know what, I actually don't think that there's any indication at this time for me to prescribe medication to you, which isn't always the case. But on the flip side, when it comes to treating women preconceptually or during pregnancy or postpartum, I often describe myself as maybe being a lot more liberal in that regard. Like, it's not something that I find scary. It's something that I find that my patients have been very grateful and thankful to have somebody that's actually willing to talk to them about treating depression and anxiety when they're trying to have a baby, when they are pregnant, postpartum because we have gotten to a point where there's so much prioritization on either the unborn child, the child that's here, or even the idea of a child that hasn't even been conceived. And we're forgetting that at the end of the day, mom needs to be taken care of too. And women and their mental health is of utmost priority. And if they are not healthy there, it's going to be so challenging to keep them and their babies healthy moving forward. One thing that a lot of people don't realize is depression itself is the number one comorbidity of pregnancy. It's higher than gestational diabetes. It's higher than preeclampsia. It really needs to be recognized as something that isn't not taken care of and is looked as like optional to treat during pregnancy and postpartum. It's just as crucial as Checking glucose and checking heart rates and all of those other things. So, yes, I find that it's that again, that I'm refreshing in how I take care of patients. And I've gotten that feedback over and over again. I think it's
0: so important the point that you make when we look at the pregnancy associated mortality review of the state of Missouri, which we have a D minus, I believe, and 45% of those deaths are related to mental health of some sort. When you look at that and you think of the women that have depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, substance abuse, whatever the issue, isn't your mental health so important because then you're alive and you're well. And this is important to address and not be dismissed that only your physical being is what causes wellness. Our mental being is what truly defines our wellness because the rest falls into place with that. And so it is an uphill battle for our state, but for women in this country, don't you think? Definitely.
1: I think that there's it for too long. We have really looked at mental health as like secondary. And again, treating it is somewhat optional, whereas it, I find it's pretty crucial. <laughs> right. And certainly has effects on your physical health. If, again, if your mental health is not in a good place, it's almost impossible to be maintaining appropriate things to keep your physical health. And there's definitely literature out there that shows that women who are having their depression and anxiety treated and feel stable in that regard are much more likely to go to prenatal visits. They're much more likely to seek out the other sorts of care and honestly advocate for themselves if they also feel like something's not going right physically. If they're having a physical symptom that they say, you know what, this isn't necessarily just because I also have depression or anxiety, or this isn't just because I'm pregnant and they have more confidence
0: because they feel as though this isn't quote like all in their head. Absolutely. And I think One of the examples that I give to patients when they're really struggling with taking medication or continuing treatment during pregnancy, I would say if you use an inhaler for asthma so that you can breathe, if you have chronic hypertension, and in order to keep your baby's blood flow good and your own blood flow good and for you to be well in this pregnancy is to take an antihypertensive, then if you have severe depression and without appropriate medication and therapy and support, you don't eat, drink, sleep, do as you need to, seems pretty imperative to get that mental health as well.
1: Correct. I have very similar conversations with my patients. I say nobody would ever ask you to stop your blood pressure medication. They wouldn't ever ask you to stop your diabetes medication or your thyroid medication. If anything, they would say for the well-being of the baby, you should continue doing those things. Now, they might make adjustments. They might Change which antihypertensive you're taking, or they might change something else with how you're taking medications. But it shouldn't be just something that you say, "Oh, you're pregnant, stop your medication." Which, again, I've heard that over and over again from patients of mine, whether it's been from their primary care doctor, from their OB/gyne, sometimes even from a psychiatrist that they've seen before they've met with me. And I'm always curious as to what's driving that. What is driving this knee-jerk reaction to stop your medication? Because again, these aren't optional things to treat. We see that in day to day, even outside of pregnancy, that people will be like, we really need to take that medication. Is it really necessary? Sometimes that will come from family members. But when it comes from the medical community, I've found that women, they have a hard time knowing what to do because they trust their clinicians. They trust the people that they see to give them appropriate guidance. So again, I find that I spend a lot of time providing a lot of education. I will pull up Studies and statistics so that they can see that in general, most of the medications that I prescribe are honestly pretty safe in pregnancy. Nothing's 100% considering literature and articles we've seen about even things as simple as like Tylenol now may maybe have some issues depending on the person. And that's Mm -hmm. probably true for most things. But that in general, most medications that women are taking for depression or anxiety are pretty safe. They do not cause birth effects, They do not cause impaired growth of the baby and that they are safe to take throughout. There may not be no risk whatsoever, but it's important to go through what are those risks truly so that a woman can make an informed decision versus being just told, stop it.
0: I think too, from my personal clinical experience in taking care of women for so long, there's fear being the person that says, yes, you can take that medication or you cannot in the litigation environment that we have had. But also there is a community effect on pregnancy. When a woman comes in and says, my sister, my mom, this blog on Google, on TikTok, I heard, I saw, I was told, and that can be very confusing. So having a very honest, transparent conversation and covering the risks and benefits in the literature that we do have, but bringing it for full circle and saying, We want you healthy. We want you alive. We want you well. We want you to be able to bond with your baby, enjoy your baby, be safe for yourself, not desire to harm yourself or others. And to me, that's basics. That's like airway breathing, respirations, right? We need to have all those things, but we have to have the mental well being to do those daily actions in life. And so, it cannot be said enough that your mental health is 100% your well-being.
1: Correct. Really, the screening for these things should be part of the kind of ob bundle that they have. You do your glucose tolerance test. You check your blood pressure. You do these things. And I was recently at the Marseille of North America's biennial conference. They have it generally in the odd years in October, November. And there was some discussion about that, how it really just needs to become part of the routine when you go see your OB-GYN during your pregnancy, that there's just screening at different points throughout the pregnancy so that it's very normalized. It's very comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you are worried about saying. It's Mm -hmm. not something that you're worried about the ramifications of because those are the other kinds of things I've heard from patients is they're worried about letting somebody know how they're feeling Mm -hmm. and maybe some of the intrusive thoughts and things that they're having because they're concerned. Is that going to impact them being able to be treated or taken seriously? Is it going to impact them being able to take their baby home after they deliver? Those sorts of things. So it really just needs to be normalized and be part of how we're taking care of moms and babies.
0: You bring up a good point there too. We do within our health system do regular screenings prenatally, preconceptionally with well visits throughout pregnancy and postpartum. The issue that we can run into many times is you have women, you have people who are afraid to answer the questions honestly. They may not have a trusting relationship with whomever is going to be receiving the answers to those questions. They may fear penalty, judgment, discrimination in some way if they're honest with those answers. And as we have this discussion, opening the door for all of us to feel comfortable about being vulnerable and transparent. And in order to do that, those receiving the information, the healthcare providers need to do so without judgment, without biases and meeting those women where they are is not where you are. You don't know what their home life, their life within their family connections, career-wise, what their support system is. And many times I do think that that is forgotten because we live in this such hurry, hurry, reactive medicine, reactive healthcare system. So hopefully with what you're doing, we can make a change by each individual person and they can talk to their neighbors, their friends, their loved ones, their healthcare providers, and see if we can't open up the minds and allow permission to just be vulnerable and real. I wholeheartedly agree.
1: I have seen some change over the past several years and... Obviously, the youth that are out there that are making some of the TikToks, that are making some of the other social media, that generation of young adults is really advocating for mental health and really advocating for individuals to represent themselves true, to just be true with how they're feeling, to seek help and to say, I can't do this alone. And I see a therapist and that's okay. Or I see a psychiatrist and that's okay. I've also heard feedback from those that work in the healthcare community, especially doing some of these screenings. It's hard to screen if I don't know who I'm going to refer them to, depending on those answers. Not only sometimes is it the patient not being sure if they should be answering honestly because they don't know what comes next, but sometimes the actual clinicians don't know what comes next either. And so not being able to provide somebody with a referral for who they would see if they're saying, hey, I'm feeling really depressed or I'm having these really uncomfortable, intrusive thoughts or I'm having a lot of anxiety. I think it's something that we've all been grappling with. And that's why I find so much joy in providing the kind of care that I provide because for some reason it does come really naturally to me. I do really enjoy taking care of women of reproductive age and guiding them through. I like spending time just educating them and sometimes educating those partners or their other clinicians or other family members, and helping to dismiss some of the stigma and dismiss just misinformation all around about how can these things really be treated? What is really safe? What is going to be honestly the overall best
0: outcome? What do you feel like are the most common perinatal mental illnesses that you see?
1: Most commonly, depression and anxiety. Postpartum depression it has a name, it has a label, it's something that is being screened more and more. But at the end of the day, myself and the therapists and psychologists that I work with, we see a tremendous amount of postpartum anxiety as well. And that more so than even the depression, especially for first time parents, first time moms, is often felt to, again, be one of those things like, oh, that's normal. That's natural. Of course, she's going to worry about everything all the time. If she's learning the ropes, of course, she's going to be worried about how to do things with a diaper and should the baby sleep that way or should they feed that way and those sorts of things. But that actually, there can become a point where that anxiety really starts to interfere with mom's quality of life, with her ability to get sleep, with her ability to bond with the baby and to adequately make decisions about things. And so those are the things I counsel the patients that I see. If I am fortunate enough to walk with them through an entire pregnancy, I see them at least once in the first trimester, once in the second and once or twice in the third. And one of those visits in the third trimester, I strongly encourage their partner to join so that I can walk them through expectations postpartum and talk with them about, okay, well, your partner is seeing me for X, Y, and Z. Maybe it's major depressive disorder. Maybe it's generalized anxiety disorder. Maybe it's OCD, whatever it happens to be. Symptoms of those things are what we're likely going to see maybe exacerbate a bit postpartum. But especially with anxiety, I say if the baby's sleeping, if your partner's sleeping, and you're sitting awake and looping on all of these different fears and worries and thoughts, you should be exhausted postpartum, especially those first few weeks. Like mm-hmm. You should be falling asleep any chance you get. And if the level of stress or worry or anxiety is keeping you awake, that is probably a sign that it's something more than just, quote unquote, what you would expect to happen postpartum, more than that learning curve of being a new parent. And that's where we have to look at what are ways that we can treat that, not always pharmacologically, but what are all the different things we can do? And sleep is one of the first things that I look at, because naturally people are just told you're not going to sleep those first few weeks. That again is one of those generalizations and normalizations that is often misguided, because I consider sleep to be the rate-limiting step. It can be the thing that if you get better sleep, your mood and anxiety can definitely be better managed. And it's certainly the thing if you're getting less sleep, that it's going to be exacerbated or worse. And so I talk through how can both parents, but certainly mom who's gone through the physical pregnancy and a delivery and has also gone through the hormonal changes that happen around that time, how do we get her sleep as soon as possible and get chunks of sleep that are substantial, that are restorative? Because if you're not getting sleep and you're anxious, that's a negative feedback loop that's just gonna feed on itself and it's just gonna make things worse and worse.
0: What are some red flags? So when you're giving patients or you're giving their loved ones red flags to watch for, what particular red flags do you see are the most prevalent? Sure.
1: I do walk them through, again, the normal things they should expect. So I'll walk them through baby blues or postpartum blues and expecting that there could be some emotional fluctuations in those first couple of weeks, usually peaks around day seven to 10 of, could be tearfulness that seems to have no reason behind it, or maybe a little bit of rumination, those sorts of things. What I tell them is more signs that we see a depressive episode happening or an anxiety episode happening is, again, persistent and bothersome symptoms, things that don't remit from getting to take a short nap or from maybe taking a walk or something like that. So with depression, it's going to be the classic major depressive episode is at least two weeks of feeling sad, low, down, apathetic, and then that's accompanied by disruptions in sleep, interests, appetite, energy. A lot of those things are a little gray postpartum because of course your sleep is disrupted and that in turn could potentially disrupt your energy and concentration. Your appetite could also be skewed. Some of those things we have to take with a grain of salt, but if there's in particularly low mood and low mood and tearfulness that doesn't remit quickly, if the person who has birthed the baby starts saying things like, you guys would be better off without me. I'm a horrible mother. I'm not even sure that I should be around, any of those sorts of things, lying in bed all the time, shows disinterest in activities, is given the option to do some self-care, take a shower, go get the haircut, go for coffee with a friend, and they turn all of it down and they'd rather just lie in bed. Those are signs that this is certainly something beyond baby or postpartum blues, and that this is looking more like a depressive episode. And that I would say, call me as soon as you can so I can check in with them. And if they're already on medication, maybe we can adjust the medication. If they're not on medication, maybe we need to start considering initiating it. But in the circumstances where maybe that's they've decompensated quickly and maybe they are more like severely depressed and they are really talking about things like it would be better off for everyone if I wasn't here, they literally are saying the words, I want to die, or they're contemplating suicide. That's would be considered pretty severe postpartum depression and oftentimes would necessitate going to the hospital for evaluation because sometimes those things can continue to decompensate or escalate quickly. And then furthermore, if it seems like, and I often describe this to partners is basically if they're just starting to act a little weird or odd or different than they used to. So not just maybe saying some of the things I've already mentioned, but Maybe it seems like they're responding to voices that aren't there. Maybe they seem more paranoid or it's just, again, saying some odd things, acting suspicious. Those might be reasons to that there's an evolving postpartum psychosis. And that's considered a psychiatric emergency. That's not something that should attempt to be managed on an outpatient basis. I say, if those kinds of things are presenting themselves, you're welcome to call me and let me know you're on the way to the hospital. But I'm going to be sending you there if that wasn't already on your radar and that should be taken care of. And the good news is postpartum psychosis, if caught early and the patient has gotten to the hospital quickly, like it's easily treated. It can be treated very well and responds very well to medications for that. So those are in the depression side of things that seem can be worrisome in the path I walk them through on how to determine is it, again, what we'd expect, some postpartum blues versus depression versus psychosis. And then as far as anxiety goes, similar to what I'd said a couple minutes ago, really if it starts interfering with them being able to sleep and then that in turn starts feeding on itself and they're not sleeping and they're getting more anxious and maybe they're having panic attacks and intrusive thoughts, that often we can go ahead and treat on an outpatient basis, but likely that's going to result in needing others to help with some of the care of the baby overnight because we're going to have to get even more sleep initiated and also might require medication to help initiate that sleep or kind of break that anxiety cycle and call it put the wet blanket on the fire. And like we mm-hmm. need to extend right. that quickly mm-hmm. with medication. And then once we can retrain the brain that, yes, you are able to sleep and get some restorative sleep, then the anxiety in and of itself is going to decrease. And then they're going to be able to start thinking a little bit more logically again, be able to make decisions. And we can go from there. Anxiety often doesn't need to result in hospitalization, but I would say it often results in a lot of ER visits because it can come with a lot of physical symptoms too, and mom's worried that something else might be happening.
0: Correct. So, as you're going through all of this, which is an excellent explanation, I think what would be great is if you could provide any resources. So, some women, or I would say probably majority, aren't currently seeking care based on any type of psychiatric needs. So, if they're in that perinatal period or postpartum, And having fleeting thoughts, depression, severe anxiety, besides utilizing the emergency room, which is not ideal unless it's truly emergent, what resources do you direct people to so that they can either find out accurate information about what to do or to actually receive treatment or therapy in a quick timeline?
1: for those that aren't maybe under my care and right. a perinatal psychologist so there's a couple of really great resources that are available to anyone and everybody at least anyone everyone that has a phone and potentially internet so the national maternal mental health hotline is out there and that's available 24/7 it's free it's confidential they have folks that can talk with women in 60 plus languages and you can call or text and it's 1833 TLC MAMA, M A M A. So that's definitely one, especially for more acute sorts of symptoms, like right away, somebody that you could call or text with to walk you through and then should hopefully be able to provide you with resources within your area. If maybe things are worsening, but they're not maybe as Urgent per se. Postpartum Support International is also a great resource. You can get on their website and you can search by state. They have information about the most common postpartum mood and anxiety presentations. So, depression, anxiety, OCD, postpartum PTSD, which again, a lot of folks don't realize is something else that can present itself based on how the delivery went. And then you can also search by state and therapists, psychologists, physicians that have registered with them or have let them know, hey, this is a population of folks that I really enjoy taking care of. They'll have their profiles on there so that you could reach out and schedule an appointment with one of them. They also offer online support, like different groups and things like that too. So you can look and see, are there ones for your specific region? But also a lot of them that they offer nationally. So it'll tell you like, oh, it's going to be Pacific Standard Time or Eastern Standard Time, and you can get on and do things. So those are the two that I think of offhand that are the most, that provide like a wealth of information and can help both in the mild to moderate symptomatology or things that are evolving more seriously.
0: I love that. I also do find that we're getting more normalized into insurance companies having on their websites where they'll have a place to go or a resource the caveat to that is that our Missouri Medicaid, state Medicaid's are having a harder time with that and seem to have less resources than what I'd like to see. And accessibility is a real issue for that population. Do you find that's very helpful for patients or do you find that these national organizations do a little bit better of a job if you had much experience of one versus the other? I haven't
1: had too much experience in my outpatient practice for the most part. A St. Louis metropolitan area For those that are insured or underinsured, WashU has a perinatal behavioral health service that can often provide pretty quick appointments, especially therapy-wise, and some assessments. A lot of times those folks have been one of their patients there also. Beyond that, again, calling these different lines can help provide them with some resources, but I agree with you as far as finding those that are in-network with Missouri Medicaid, that can be quite challenging to get that care sooner versus later.
0: Hopefully, because this is becoming more and more of a topic of conversation and advocacy is occurring, it seems to be on an increasing level. Hopefully, we'll see more access to service and also just see more free education, free tools to try to help women through the harder times when they can't get the access that they need. Do you have particular perinatal mental health techniques that you prefer or that you will go to, especially when we're speaking about anxiety, depression, OCD, really anything that could maybe use multiple modalities that aren't medication related that helps your patient population the most?
1: So when I'm evaluating a patient or providing my recommendations, if medication is part of that, we certainly walk through that and what those options are. But I also talk about all of the non-pharmacological strategies that can be very helpful. So in the office, I have a library of books that I'm showing them. The one is called like the pregnancy and postpartum anxiety workbook. There's ones on OCD that I refer them to. There's one called the postpartum husband that is actually for a partner or spouse that is great because it's two to three page chapters that are mostly bullet pointed and it'll have different topics that it's not just about depression, anxiety, some about medication, some about other aspects of treatment in pregnancy and postpartum, but it goes through like, here are things to say, here are things to not say, and I've had a lot of partners tell me that this was a great resource for them. And then even my patients say it was nice for me to go through and it only took a couple of pages for me to comb through that and see, okay, here are some things I can do or ways I can think about it. I'm certainly, again, recommending good sleep hygiene and working with your partner to come up with a schedule as soon as possible to optimize that and get at least that good four to five hour chunk as soon as possible for those that have the means. I say if you can hire a night nurse someone to come in and help with the overnights, please do that to help with getting more solid sleep. I talk through other aspects for relaxation. So I'll go through guided imagery and diaphragmatic breathing and progressive muscle relaxation and provide them with resources for those things. If there's somebody that enjoys yoga or enjoys other forms of mindfulness. Interestingly, a lot of my patients that have anxiety say like early on, they're like, I'm too anxious to even be able to be calm enough to do yoga mm-hmm, or mindfulness yeah. that you really say you've got to start with something a little bit. So then we'll start with a walk. Like you just need to go for a walk every day. You need to get some, we're here in winter time, bright light exposure. I start pounding that in September and October leading up to the fall time change and all the way through winter. So bright light exposure, whether you're using an actual bright light that you purchased online or whether you're like today, it's sunny outside. I'm like, even if it's freezing, If you go outside and just let that sun bask on your face for a few minutes, it can just really change how you feel tremendously. I do have a lot of non-pharmacologic things that I will recommend. Some things are just still really hard if they are recovering from a really difficult maybe C-section or delivery, if they have other comorbid health issues. Some of the things I mentioned are just really hard to institute. And that's where I'll say maybe we do need to go ahead and move forward with initiating a medication because in the short term... They may not have the time, flexibility, or feasibility to get to a therapist appointment or to take a walk every day because maybe they're also taking care of other small children at home. Maybe they're a single parent. There's so many things that impede executing a lot of the non-pharmacological things, which is something else that I'll stress. Like Sometimes the medication is helpful when you aren't able to do some of those other things. And once you are able to do some of those other things, that might enable us to adjust the medication dose down the line. You still might need it a low dose, but we might be able to bring that dose down a bit once you're able to institute some of those other things.
0: And I think too, validating that it's okay to not be okay. And it's Mm -hmm. okay to let those around you take care of you and help hold you up. And it's okay to ask for help. If you don't receive the response back, that feels good. That feels supported. Then that's just not the right person at the right time at the right place. And that's okay. That's not your issue. That's their issue. and so. What we want is to have people in our lives that help carry us and will be there for us. And again, none of us have to be okay all of the time. And none of us have to be the best mom, wife, sister, brother, daughter, neighbor, all of the time. Mm -hmm. Humans and going through pregnancy or reproductive years or trying to get pregnant, breastfeeding or not successfully breastfeeding. Or adopting and having to take on the mother role of which you've never done before, or father role you've never done before, and taking on a role that's new, all of it's an experiment. You've never done whatever that is at that time, at that place for that person. And so accepting the fact that we are all imperfect, beautiful human beings that, again, do not have to always be okay, and leaning on each other and leaning in to the help is so important and does not make you less than does not make you like you are unable or less quality in life because you need a little bit of help here and there. And I feel like so many women, so many humans, so many people feel that they are supposed to be great all the time and self-sufficient all the time and can do it all of the time. And I think particularly mothers seem to get this stereotype of needing to be able to take care of not just the child, but the children, the family, the mother-in-law, the neighbor, the dog, the friend's kids, whatever it is, but yet you're still supposed to be taking care of yourself. So Mm -hmm. why is that not the number one priority? It really should be. That's not what we've been taught though. We've been taught to put ourselves last and mental health is where we can truly get to a point that if we take care of ourselves first and we are healthy and healed, then we can do better caring for others. And then we can receive the advice that you're giving the bright light, the going on a walk, the doing yoga, therapy, getting sleep, good nutrition, calming music, biofeedback, diaphragmatic breathing, whatever the techniques are that work for you to bring that parasympathetic response in and calm, then the rest of the health and the environment and the families and the relationships fall into place. And as you said, medication may be necessary in there too, but I just want to give everyone permission that it's okay to not be okay and to need the help.
1: And something I also tell my patients and their partners is nobody knows your baby or what they're going to be like until they're here. So people are going to give you all kinds of advice and all kinds of guidance. You should do this. You should do that. This is how it's going to be. And nobody's met this magical little person until they present themselves. And even then, it's going to be a huge learning curve. So you and your partner get to decide how you guys are going to navigate that what things your baby needs based on how they present themselves and you get to make those choices. And that's why if you're a breastfeeding mom, awesome. If you're a formula feeding mom, awesome. None of that's right. There's not a right way to do things. You may have a lot of people telling you what's the right thing to do and what's not the right thing to do. But, and I do find that confidence grows for a lot of them in the second pregnancy, the third pregnancy, especially for some of them that I've journeyed with them through all of those pregnancies. Or maybe they had a first pregnancy and came to see me postpartum, and then I was with them through a second pregnancy. And they'll say, yes, I've learned that. And this time of the year is a time that I'm often having those conversations. Those that are due around the holidays, and maybe this also predates the pandemic, which is a whole other thing I'm determining about visiting the newborn and those sorts of things. But what often advocate I said, you get to make the rules and guidelines of when people get to meet your baby, how you want to do that. If you want to say you can only come if you've had your flu vaccine and those sorts of things, you get to make those rules and that's okay. And if anybody criticizes you, that's on them because that baby's sure not going to remember who they met in the first few weeks or months of their lives and when they met them and how that went. And if anyone's going to hold that against you, but I also tell them, if you need someone to blame it on me, say that your doctor said that you can't do that. Say that your doctor said it's in your best interest to not come to Thanksgiving or to not come to Christmas. Or whatever celebration it is that you need your rest, that you need to use that time to bond with your baby. Whatever it is you want to say, because a lot of times I'm one of the main people they're seeing. Myself and the pediatrician most see their ob/gyn for one or two postpartum checks, and then they don't see them again for maybe as much as a year. They're seeing me a lot. They're seeing the pediatrician a lot, but the pediatrician is also not their doctor. It's their baby's doctor. They've been brought into the fold, though to help identify moms that are struggling. And I often recommend that we have an ROI on file in case they would need to reach out to me. Hey, so-and-so was here with their baby for the two month check. And man, I think they're really struggling and I hope that they're gonna get in to see you sooner. But just really using that village, having a lot of eyes on mom, having a lot of eyes on both parents. Because even the one that didn't deliver the baby can also experience postpartum mood anxiety as well. And it's a journey for that couple. And so just need to make sure that they all know that it's okay to take care of themselves and to keep their communication going, to not lose their identity in this life transition. It's a lot of change and we need to really embrace that and not minimize it. And everything that you said, I agree with. We, we need to be championing people to say, I'm not going to be okay all the time. And when I'm not okay, maybe I need to be left alone for a little bit, or maybe I need to get to go on a walk and somebody else takes care of the baby while they do that. Or maybe I need a nap. Maybe I need whatever it is.
0: And that's okay. We don't have, the expectation isn't perfection. I think too, for all of us to remind our loved ones that just tell me what it is that you need or you want. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Tell me what you need right now. No judgment. That's what will happen. Because I think many of us are such people pleasers or the desire is to not ruffle feathers or to not cause any issues. And you want to just be this picture of perfection. And it's a pretty little motherhood time period. But it's not pretty. It's not glamorous. It's not just all roses and sunshine. It's very difficult with a lot of heartache and a lot of newness. And validating that and, again, just walking alongside people rather than doing it with displacing how we feel onto them. So I do appreciate all your sharing. and I really do love your delivery of empowering women to have a voice for themselves and that their loved ones can also be with them, understand what they're going through and to give them the tools to be better. Such a beautiful way to deliver care and love to the world and hopefully improve the mental health issues that we have that have been so long unaddressed. I would love for you to share the best way to reach you Of course, you have your new clinic that you're opening and you have a website, but is there anything in particular you'd like to share on how people can reach out to you? I'm a
1: little bit in transition, so I am putting that out there, but I am going to be continuing to provide outpatient reproductive mental health care. So I see a variety of things. We've been talking a lot about pregnancy and postpartum, but other things that I do treat I do see women when I say like preconception planning to talk through things like maybe they've been taking antidepressant for 10 years and now they're thinking about having a baby and they want to know if that's safe to do. I work with women with infertility, with recurrent pregnancy loss, with decreased libido and other sexual health concerns, perimenopause, pelvic pain, variety of things. So at this time, I don't have a phone number for my new practice as of yet. It's TBD, but it will be McKean Reproductive Psychiatry. And that will be the website also, Psychiatry.com. So you can either Google that or the website is also in progress at the moment. But Hopefully everything will be up and going the first or second week of January of
0: 2024. Well, so um, then we will update the show notes to reflect that and to make sure that people have a way to contact you. And I'd like to share some of those national organizations, the websites that you offered for the hotline and for the postpartum support. I'll put that into the show notes as well, because those are such amazing resources.
1: Thank you. I refer folks to them all the time and I'll include a couple others for you as well, for those that have questions about medication, but mother is another one. That's a great one. It doesn't have to be just for psychiatric medication. It can be any kind of medication, vaccines, other kinds of exposures. It's vetted by OTIS, which is the organization for teratology information specialists, but they're not tied to any certain drug company or anything like that. They are literally doing evidence-based research into what is safe and really helping to dispel, again, myths of things that are unsafe and walking through both preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum and letting people know if you drink caffeine or you take a blood pressure medication or you take an antidepressant, what's the safety out there for that? And then another great website is womensmentalhealth.org. It's out of MGH mecca for all reproductive mental health, and they even have a registry that patients can become a part of. Because at this point, that's where we get a lot of our information. It's not ethical to do randomized double-blind control trials on pregnant women, but if women who either have symptoms and aren't taking medication. Or have symptoms and are taking medication or have nothing at all and they just want to be the controls. If you want to be part of different registries, you can. And that provides us with information on the safety of medications for moving forward so that we can continue to provide the best informed consent and walk through those things with women and help them to feel confident that choices that they're
0: making are the ones that they feel good about. Thank you for sharing those, and we'll be sure to get those in the show notes, and I'll have her send me the direct link so that I give you the right information. Thank you again for your time today, and I appreciate all your hard work and your wisdom that you've shared today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a true joy, and I hope that it's provided, again, a refreshing perspective perhaps on the treatment of some of these things and provided
0: some really great information. I love it. And hopefully we can talk again and maybe share some insights on any particular topics. And you as the audience, if you have questions or something you'd like us to cover on a future podcast, please message one of us and let us know because we're happy to assist and hopefully empower each of you to better health. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Why Am I Just Finding This Out? We are facing a crisis in women's health. It is time to be seen and heard. It is time to address medicine and wellness for women holistically. And whatever we do, let's strive to leave a legacy of better. Thank you. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical
1: advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult your healthcare provider.